0: Thanks for tuning in to Dark Corner Media. By the way, we are also on YouTube, so if you like pictures instead of just listening, you can also do that. Just search for Dark Corner Media. We live in the era of conspiracy theories. Once thought to only belong to crazy cab drivers. I don't know what I know, but I know it and it's big. The new conspiracy theorist is considered An open thinker, and someone that just doesn't believe what's on the surface. And while this still baffles us sheep who rely on science and basic knowledge, there is a reason these theories do persist in history. And why some of them become ridiculously popular despite how stupid they sound, and even how little proof there is. For the most part, generally a good conspiracy theory is born out of some nugget of truth, or just plainly targets our innermost fears. And the best of them do both. But the biggest reason they persist and, in fact, become common knowledge is because from time to time, they're proven true. So then, let's take a look at those that have actually been real. MKUltra And let's start with the most obvious, the MKUltra program that was undertaken by the CIA and impacted thousands of Americans and Canadians as well over the course of 20 plus years. According to author Stephen Kinzer, the project was a continuation of work that had begun during World War II by the Japanese as well as the Germans. The original testing was done to try and subdue and control human minds. And that was something the CIA was keenly interested in doing for several different reasons. According to a document from 1955, the effort of MKUltra was to create a whole lineup of methods that would allow the agency to do things like find substances which will promote illogical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public or to create temporary amnesia, or to enhance a person's ability to withstand torture. Now, the list is actually quite extensive and we'll dip into more of that in a few, but the search was on to find out if there was a way, through drugs, to basically alter humans to the will of the government. Mescaline, acid, flat-out chemicals, hypnosis, electroshock, sensory deprivation, isolation, and several forms of abuse, including sexual. And while many of these theories surrounding MKUltra focused on the supposed testing to make super soldiers, the biggest testing phase of the program was with LSD and was generally seen as defensive research. I mean, sure, the idea of a fully programmed human that could continue through pain and suffering while not batting an eyelash, perhaps even with superpower strength, was awesome. But the idea of enhanced interrogation was much more appealing to the pseudo-peaceful era that it was in. The Cold War was raging on, and the CIA was convinced there were Russian spies everywhere. And the idea of using these drugs to flip operatives and make them defect against their will was just perfect. And that's exactly the direction they went. Now, according to documents unsealed in 1976, the CIA was looking at purchasing up to 100 million doses of the drug just to stop other countries from doing the same. And once the program was in full swing, it wasn't exactly something you signed up for. They started with military personnel, but the sample size wasn't enough, so they spread their net for civilians. And while this whole story reads like a badly written Robert Ludlum novel, it cemented the idea in our heads that the government uses us as pawns and that Big Brother had their hands in more than we knew. It was the start of the big push to distrust government. And to make matters worse, as the truth was coming out in the 70s, countless records were purposefully destroyed. So we will never know the full extent of the program or what they may have accomplished. Many think it may have found several versions of success in the early days, perhaps being the catalyst for certain high-profile assassinations. But sadly, today we will only focus on what we have proof of. And with that, there is a ton of information we're missing here. Which means the conspiracies will only continue. Project Sunshine And of course, we find ourselves back in the post-World War II era, early 50s to be exact, for our next theory. And this one is simple. The theory was that the government was stealing bodies to study the effects of nuclear fallout. And at the time, everyone was very focused on that big flash in the sky, and they were detonating bombs as much as possible. Just to, you know, see how much horror they could inflict. But there was one issue. They really couldn't ethically test fallout on humans. I mean, could they? could they? I mean, if you're going to be dropping these bombs on and around your citizens, you got to find out what kind of damage you're doing. So, Project Sunshine became a thing. And well, the theories they weren't really that far off. Now, the initial research needed to know the measurement of the dispersion of radioactive isotope Sr90, widely considered the most dangerous threats from nuclear fallout. So, they went looking for flesh. Literally but they needed young person flesh, which just makes this all the more gruesome. You see, in young people, their bones and flesh were more likely to accumulate SR-90, therefore were more susceptible to radiation damage. And so, in 1955, the Atomic Energy Commissioner, Willard Libby, launched the project to go out and source body parts from young people. Something that was initially kept very quiet because, you know, It's kind of creepy. The silence didn't last long though, only being secret until 1956. That said, most of the samples came from abroad, Australia and Europe being the biggest targets. Now the whistleblower? Well, a British newspaper reported that several scientists were obtaining bodies and shipping parts to the US. I will warn you, there are some horrific stories out of this one and I would advise you not to dig too deep if you don't want to know more about it. For now, let's just call this one. Poisoned by the Government And for the next, perhaps not as dark, this theory states that the US government was poisoning alcohol during prohibition to deter people from consuming it. And while this one ends up being true on paper, there's a bit more behind this than a lot of people believe. Now, in case you didn't know, nationwide prohibition lasted from 1920 to 1933 in the US. And it was a largely failure of a law, and it ended after the stock crash of 1929 because well, some people just needed a drink at that point. Also, it had literally fueled the establishment of organized crime to a massive level. And because of that, throughout those 13 years, it was nigh on impossible to keep the sauce out of everyone's hands. And because it was an illegal activity, there were deaths involved, but some people started noticing a few more deaths than was normal. So, the theory was that alcohol was being directly poisoned to deter. And it kinda was, but not directly. You see, the government knew what was going into the alcohol that was being produced. And considering the people that were making the alcohol were the less savory kind, they knew that some corners were being cut. And that one corner was, well, the alcohol itself. You see, during this time, the crime syndicates were using distilled industrial strength alcohol. You know, like the stuff, You might use to clean. So the government just mandated certain additives to that industrial alcohol supply. And of course, those additives were toxic. Quinine, methyl alcohol, and other toxic chemicals were added, which just turned the alcohol to deadly hooch that apparently smelled absolutely horrible. In one of the more publicized tragedies, New Year's Day in 1927 saw 41 people die at New York's Bellevue Hospital alone, all due to alcohol related poisoning. All in all, a conservative estimate of people that died in this manner sits at a staggering 10,000 people across the country. There are more liberal estimates that peg it closer to 50,000. Not to mention the countless others that survived and didn't exactly have stellar health. Now what makes this a million times worse is that it wasn't actually illegal to drink the alcohol, just to sell it or transport it. So basically, The government killed off thousands of citizens who did absolutely nothing illegal just to battle organized crime. That's classy. The Fruit Machine And firstly, I want to apologize to anyone within the LGBTQ community for the naming of this but sadly, this is what it was called. This was a horrific test that was dreamt up in the 50s to rid the Canadian government of all gay men from civil service, RCMP, and the military. Now, the reason the government wanted to do this is varied. Of course, yes, the stigmatization of gays and lesbians back in those days was (laughs) pretty brutal, as most of the medical world still considered it to be a mental health issue. But there was also a tie to the Cold War. After several spies were outed in Canada and the UK and were also found out to be gay, the permeating idea was that gay people were the perfect target for recruiting agents, mostly by Russia. Now, the idea is simple. Go there and do this, or we're gonna tell on you. Now, Considering the aforementioned stigma on homosexuality in the 50s, it was a proper threat. So the decision was made to remove all gay men from any role that may have had sensitive information. And at the same time, if they were able to just remove them all from the roles in the government and the military, all the better, right? So this machine was designed and deployed by Frank Robert Wake, a professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. The idea was that it would identify gay men through the responses to certain pornography by tracking specific physiological responses, specifically through the dilation of the eyes. A concept torn straight out of science fiction. And of course, the testing methodology was flawed from the get-go. The idea that random men who were strapped into a chair and forced to watch pornography would react differently depending on their sexual preferences is, in a word, dumb. Now, initially, the people that were included in the study were told that it was to try and rate their responses to stress. After people started to catch on what the real use was for, less and less volunteered for it. But I think the truly horrific thing about this is that it was still going on in the 90s. And an apology from the government for, well, you know, crushing their human rights into dust for decades didn't come until 2017. Bonus Facts On that cheerful note, here's some interesting notes on these. Going back to MKUltra, the idea of wearing a tinfoil hat to stop access to your mind actually predates the program. In fact, it can be traced back to a story written in 1927 by Julian Huxley called the Tissue Culture King where the main character uses a metal hat to prevent mind control by an evil scientist. In fact, the idea of using radio waves and other methods of mind control were considered during MKUltra. So I mean, perhaps if you have just one in your wardrobe, maybe just to be safe. Also during Prohibition, speakeasies were the main way to get out with friends and were generally built up in cellars and were very difficult to gain access to. But the parties were never really as boisterous as they are portrayed in movies. Generally. The mood was considered quite reserved as patrons were reminded to speak easy, as to not notify authorities that might be close by. And most of these outfits were actually quite inventive, allowing the bar area to disappear completely if there was a raid, most times having it drop down to a sewer or even slide behind a fake wall. Also when prohibition lifted, it wasn't necessarily the end of the line for the laws. States were allowed to continue outlawing alcohol and several did. The final prohibition state laws to be lifted was in Mississippi in 1966. And finally, in case you were blown away by the seemingly progressive Canada being super invasive and not up to par for the gay community, perhaps a bit of history there. It wasn't until 1969 that the act of being gay was decriminalized in Canada. Meaning prior to that, you could be locked up in a jail for just being gay. And by the way, it wasn't just a day or two in the slammer. In 1967, a mechanic named Everett Clippert was imprisoned indefinitely as a dangerous sex offender just for admitting to police that he had sex with other men. And to add insult to that, the Supreme Court of Canada actually backed up that sentence in a ruling later in that same year. And even though it got decriminalized in 69, it wasn't until 1996 that sexual orientation was added to the Canadian Human Rights Act. And it wasn't until 2005 that same-sex marriages were allowed at a federal level. And even in 2006, only 17 years ago from the time that I'm filming this video here, the Conservative Party was still trying to overturn the law. Canada, perhaps not as progressive as you may have thought.